Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. And so, we're in Corinthians, and we're really getting up to Corinthians 11. I haven't posted all the recordings, but if you get on the network, you'll hear the recordings as we post them, and uh, have access to them. And uh, I'm still putting notes together constantly to uh, so that people can actually understand. You know, Peter said... That Paul was going to speak to us about things hard to understand. And this is, this is critical in, in realizing that, uh, this, uh, gospel is really very simple. And it's not complicated, but it's different than what most people are being told and what have been told. And of course we were told that somebody would come in and create damnable heresies that would uh, make life difficult and make understanding the Gospels difficult. And of course, like I said, Paul was going to talk to us about things that were difficult to understand, hard to understand, and that's what Peter said about him. And so Paul is one of the most misunderstood uh, and one of the most prominent in the New Testament I mean, most of the epistles are Paul. Nobody else has written as many. They're not all Paul's, and we go through each individual and tell you about, you know, did Paul actually write this? Did he? Did somebody else write it for Paul? Uh, is it believed that Paul didn't write it at all? You know, they just don't know. We we say, you know, we don't even know who it was who wrote the Gospels, really. We know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But we don't really know. There's a huge debate as to whether John was John the Apostle. And there's, since the writing style is so much different than the epistles, and we're pretty sure that Paul, John wrote the epistles, did Paul, John really write the gospel? It doesn't say in the original uh, transcription who wrote it. It says it was the beloved disciple, and we assume the beloved disciple means John. But it doesn't necessarily mean that if you really get in depth and look at the original text before people like Constantine and Eusebius and a lot of other people have come along interpreting it, King James, etc. But are these essential? Did enough of the New Testament Gospels survive in the text? And in many of the translations, I would say yes. There's a few of the translations that are horrible. They're not even translations. They're uh, they're the products of somebody's imagination. But generally speaking, you know, I use the King James, but I'm not above looking at the NIV or some of the other people who have done translations, such as Charles Williams, who's done uh, translations on the epistles, and, and Tyndale, who did translations. And I will look at them, and I will look at the original Greek and the original Hebrew as best as we have. I will look at the the Dead Sea Scrolls and see what they have there and look at the letters and, and as you, if those of you who follow will see that I'm looking at all these things. But I'm looking at them not simply as an intellectual endeavor. 
I'm looking at them as someone who is trying to be led by the Holy Spirit. And that's what I want you to do, is be led by the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul was trying to impart to the people that when he was talking to them in 1 Corinthians 11. But in 1 Corinthians 11 is probably one of the more misunderstood, I wouldn't say most, but it's it's up there in the top ten misunderstood chapters or epistles of Paul. And it's it's if you look at Paul in the context of Paul, and then look at Paul in the context of Christ, you might see what I'm talking about. Because people have really created strange doctrines with the use of quoting bits and pieces of Paul. But if you put Paul all together, uh, many of their doctrines are contradicted by Paul and what he very specifically said. But in Corinthians 11, it gets, it, it gets kind of confusing and actually can get kind of bizarre if people read it as a literal directive to tell you what to do or what to wear or how to wear your hair, etc. You have to understand the context of Paul and the context of the time and the context of the gospel. If what you're interpreting is taking you away from the gospel, the simplicity of the gospel, then you probably got it wrong. (laughs) So anyway, I was editing uh, my notes right up to the, the last minute of uh, I wasn't going to do Corinthians, but I think we can kind of wing it and I'll add things if uh, I miss anything. And maybe we'll pick it up when we go to Corinthians 12. But uh, basically, you know, if you if you go to preparingyou.com, which is easy to find, preparingyou.com, uh, you can see what we're putting together. And I've, I've started notes on a lot of the other books of the Bible and... Uh, and you can go there and, and see what we've put together already. And we have lots of audios with it and lots of footnotes with it. And we've talked about uh, Corinthians and, you know, the, the first Corinthians and, and the introduction to Corinthians and what Corinth was going on in Corinth at the time. But Corinth had a wide variety of people there. They had a lot of Jews. Uh, had a lot, and, but of course, the saying Jews, that's not a very homogeneous group because there were Essenes, there were Pharisees and Sadducees and Zealots, and there were lots of different kinds of Jews wandering around at that time, and they didn't all get along. I mean, it was well known that Zealots sometimes uh, stabbed Pharisees to death. They killed them. Jesus Barabbas was a rebel that was probably a Zealot, he certainly was violent. He wanted to, he had sworn the deaths of most of the high priests. Most of the high priests were of the pharisaical line. Now, there are people today that say they're Pharisees, and I'm not trying to group them all, because all Pharisees are not the same either. The Pharisees, for the most part, at the time of Jesus Christ, had become a corrupt group. Not a righteous group, but a corrupt group of men. Now, there were some Pharisees, that recognized Christ and saw the message of Christ and saw how it was in conformity with Abraham and Moses and they became followers of Christ because they were actually followers of Christ before Christ even got there. 
Now, how can they be followers of Christ before Christ even got there? Well, you actually get hints about this in 1 Corinthians 11, but most people miss it because they're all caught up with uh, haircuts and coverings. And that's not really what it's about. Uh, it starts off, the very first verse, Be ye followers of me, he says, even as I also am of Christ. So, Paul's saying he's a follower of Christ and he wants you to be a follower of him. But he's also had also talked about Apollos, the baptism of Apollos, the baptism of Paul, that we're not supposed to be dividing ourselves by saying, well, I follow Paul and I follow Apollos. So, what does he mean by followers? He wants people to follow him or doesn't he? He's saying that I want you to be followers of me even as I am of Christ. He's a follower of Christ. So what does that mean to be a follower of me even as I am a follower of Christ? Well, probably you should look at the word follower and see what the heck that word actually means. And it's a word that appears seven times in the text of the Bible. And it means an imitator. He's just saying imitate me. Be like me as I am like Christ. That would also mean that if you're not like Christ, if I do something that's not like Christ, don't be like me. Only be like me when I am like Christ. The the Greek word there is memetes, the imitator. You know, and I've done whole shows about some of the philosophers who, who consider themselves imitators, or, or consider imitation, the memetes philosophy that we are naturally going to be imitators. We see it with small children. Your children are imitating you. I had my granddaughter staying with me for a few days and I was noticing it this morning as she was playing how much of her mother when I remember her mother playing in the same room years and years ago 30 years ago uh, or more uh, that she was playing in the same room in many of the same ways. That she has, she imitates her mother. I mean, genetically, obviously she does, but physically she takes on, I see little things in her expressions that she has learned them by watching her mother. And this is, this is a valuable thing in passing on to the next generation. It also is a great burden passing on to the next generation if your children are seeing you doing things that you should not be doing. Because they will imitate that as well. And they will use your weaknesses and throw them back in your face. So, you, it is really a responsibility to be a parent. But anyway, that's what he means by follower. He doesn't mean somebody who does, you know, follows behind the person and does everything that person says to do and he's obedient and subjective. He's imitating Christ. So how do we imitate Christ? How did Paul imitate Christ? Well, he was humble. He served. He didn't want want to be a burden on other people. He wanted to be a value to other people. He rebuked them at times and he comforted them at times and he helped them at times. But he was an imitator of Christ. That's what that word there means. It may not be the only word that's translated followers, but that's what that word, memetes, means. It's actually from another word, that uh, uh, me, 
which uh, or may or my uh, me is be the correct pronunciation uh, is it appears about four times and it means to imitate also but it is usually translated follow it's just the middle voice to mimic to mimic somebody but anyway we're supposed to be followers of Christ and followers of Paul only as Paul follows Christ which is just absolutely amazing because you remember I've talked to you before about the preacher who was telling me that uh, you don't have to do anything to be saved. You just have to believe. And I said, yeah, but if you believed, you will do what Christ said. No, no, you don't have to. You just have to believe and you're automatically saved. But that's not what, if you say you believe, I've had more than one preacher try to tell me, all you have to do is say that you believe in Christ and you will be saved, period. But Jesus says, not those who say, but those who do with the will of the Father. So they've interpreted Paul to be saying something contrary to Christ and what Christ taught and say that we can now believe Paul. Because when Jesus said we were not just saying, Lord, Lord, but actually be doing the will of the Father, that was before the crucifixion. And after the crucifixion, we don't have to listen to Christ anymore. We just listen to Paul. But Paul preached Christ first. So anybody who's telling you, you don't have to be a doer of the word. You can just say, I believe in Jesus as my personal Savior. And you're automatically saved. They're liars. They're bringing in a damnable heresy. They are not preaching Christ first. They are removing Christ from the gospel. They are taking Paul out of the context of Christ. So you don't want to be listening to those people. You actually want to be praying for those people and helping those people see that they're preaching a false gospel and they're probably workers of iniquity. But then again, as we'll see later in this chapter, you shouldn't be casting pearls to swine. Because he makes reference to that indirectly, not directly. He doesn't quote Christ directly. But that principle. Do you think Jesus was really talking about taking pearls out of oyster shells and throwing them at pigs in a pen? Don't cast those little... Because I've never done that. I have never, ever, 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 ever cast any pearls to pigs in a pen. Or even out of a pen. I just never have done that. So I've never committed that sin of casting pearls to swine. If I take the statement literally. But it's not a literal statement. It's a metaphor. Like casting your bread upon the waters. How many churches go down and cast their bread upon the waters? Every Sunday. They don't. Because they know it's a metaphor. And that's very common amongst people who speak Hebrew and the Hebrew language, especially back in those days, if you're reading the Torah, it's full of metaphors. It even says in the New Testament that it talks about the Testaments being an allegory. And so the not only are there singular metaphors and individual metaphors and phrase metaphors, the whole stories sometimes are allegories. So he goes on in verse 2 and says, Now... I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things and keep the ordinances 
as I delivered them to you. Ordinances? Is Paul passing laws? Is he making rules up? Is he exercising authority, saying you have to do it this way, this way, this way, this way? Well, no. But he may bear witness to ordinances because the church is supposed to be, by definition, the church was established by Jesus Christ to promote his ordinances, his doctrines. So Paul has to be uh, preaching the doctrines of Christ and the ordinances of Christ. He can't make up new ordinances. He has to be only repeating the ordinances of Christ. So what are the ordinances of Christ? What are ordinances? Well, that particular word that they translate ordinance, it's not the only word that's translated ordinance, but this particular word, paradosis, is translated ordinance once in the Bible. It appears 13 times, but it's translated once in the Bible ordinance. And that's where it's translated ordinance, is right here. And the other 12 times it appears in the Bible, it's translated tradition. So, does it mean tradition, or does it mean ordinance? Because, you know, tradition is like, you know, Christmas. Uh, you know, or Thanksgiving. You know, we, we celebrate Thanksgiving. Uh, that would be a tradition. You know, we, we get married and the bride is wearing white. That's a tradition. It's not an ordinance, not a law. Nobody arrests a, a bride because she doesn't have white on. You know, nobody gets arrested because they don't have turkey on Thanksgiving. So it's not like an ordinance. Like we think of ordinance. This is kind of the thing in King James. So what does the original paradosis mean? Well, actually, it's defined as giving up or giving over, the act of giving up, and even the surrender of the city. It's giving over which is done by word of mouth or in writing. A tradition by instruction, narrative, precept, objectively that which is delivered, the substance of a teaching. So what he's talking about is teachings here. And keep the teachings as I delivered them to you. So, you know, he's telling them, where did he get these ordinances that he's delivering? Did he make them up? He make up new rules? Like you have to genuflect when you cross in front of the church crucifix and, and that you have to dip your finger in holy water and do the sign of the cross and, and, uh, you know, is he making up ordinances like that that you have to go to church every Sunday or you'll be committing a sin? Uh, no, that's not, he, he, he's not making up ordinances like that. Because it's Christ's ordinances that he has to be just delivering. He didn't say making up, but he said delivering to you. It's what he's giving you that he got from Christ. How did he get it from Christ? I mean, he saw Christ, supposedly, this is after Christ's death and resurrection and ascension. Supposedly, Christ appeared to him. And I guess it's true. I mean, he said it so. But he didn't walk around with Christ for years. He went off to Arabia and studied. So how does he know? He's just studying. It's just He's being told by the knowledge of men. Or was did he have another source that was not the knowledge of men? 
but the rock, the spiritual rock that he talked about and we talked about this morning when we did Corinthians 10. And you can hear that audio when we release it. <laughs> it should be up in about nine days. But uh, in Corinthians 10, he's talking about a spiritual rock. And of course, what we've talked many times before is the rock is not Peter, but Revelation. That's what he's building his church on is Revelation. Am I to be receive Revelation and then you follow me? It, are you, is it Paul that gets Revelation and then you follow Paul? Paul says, you follow him as he follows Christ. So how do you know he's following Christ? Well, you can study and compare. But really, you need revelation. And that revelation comes with anointing of the Holy Spirit. And how do you conjure up the Holy Spirit? Well, the fact is, you don't conjure up the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit list is where it will. And I'm going to tie these things together as we work our way down before we get into the hair thing and the, and the hat thing. <laughs> it has nothing to do with hairs and hats. But anyway, so uh, that word uh, that they translate ordinance and uh, also they translate tradition, it comes from a word that means to deliver. Uh, it, it's... 53 times it's translated deliver. But 40 times it's translated betray. So wait a minute. Deliver us like uh, somebody brought you a UPS package or a FedEx package. He delivered it, right? Is that the same kind of delivery that they're talking about? Because 40 times they translate it betray. I mean, does the FedEx man betray the package to you? No, he delivers the package to you. So that word delivery doesn't mean just hand it over. It has to do with giving up or giving over or something, you know, that is actually transferring kind of an ownership in some sort of way. Now, these are very abstract ideas, and that's why they use metaphors, is because there is no specific word that will actually translate these So they use words that bring you close. To really understand, you're going to need that revelation. But we're going to try to get as close to an explanation to help you along. But ultimately, you need that revelation. It's defined as to give into the hands of another. To give over into one's power of use. To deliver to one something to keep, use, take care of, or manage. So he's giving you these ordinances that you're now responsible for. And keep those ordinances. Keep those things I've delivered to you. But you have to decide how to keep them. How to manage them. And so this is very important. Now I just was looking at uh, some material that was sent to me by the other ministers on the ministers group. They came across somebody. And I'll just refer to him as Mark. And uh, he's preaching, you know, come out of Babylon, etc., and offering ID and offering, um, you know, ways of getting supposedly out of the system. But this is an age-old thing that I've seen time and time again where people are trying to get out. And really, a lot of times, they're just trying to get out of paying taxes. And that's not what Christ came to do to help you get out of paying taxes. He was going to help you get in contact with the Holy Spirit. 
That's what he, because that's what's going to set you free. Because when you're in contact with the Holy Spirit, you're eating of the tree of life, and now the truth can dwell in you as the temple of that Holy Spirit. Just getting you out of Babylon or getting you out of the bondage of Egypt, you're just going to die in the wilderness. And I see so many guys taking people to the edge of the 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 city, so to speak, and. Uh, and say, here's some ID, and here's some, you know, cards that I made up, and thanks for your 250 bucks, and now make a run for it. And I'll go back and see if I can find another sucker who will buy my ID. <laughs> you know? And, uh, of course, he's not thinking that. I mean, he thinks he's really doing good, but he, he's not doing what Christ said. He's not doing what John the Baptist said. I mean, Jesus said, pay it, Caesar. I tell you, you will get free someday because Caesar will fall. The last Caesar fell, this Caesar will fall. You know, governments of the world come and go. They always do. You know, is it tomorrow? Is it next year? Is it after the wingnut flip? (laughs) Which is kind of a code thing. I've been talking with people about it. I won't even explain it. But Something will bring the governments of the world down. It always does. It's just history. History repeats itself. So, when that happens, you'll be free. But will you survive freedom? Well, if you seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness and the full armor of God, you might survive freedom and uh, uh, survive the fall of Rome again. And that's what Christians did. They survived the fall of Rome. They didn't all survive. Many of them died. But many of them survived, and often their children survived, and their children's children survived. Your children are in debt. They're up to their ears in debt, and even your unborn children will be in debt and born into that debt because of the covetous practices, because you haven't been doing what Christ said. So that's why I don't talk about getting out of Babylon. I'm talking about getting Babylon out of you. To go back to the way of Christ. If you go back to the way of Christ and the truth of the way and the truth that you haven't been following the way, the truth will set you free. But anyway, back to this idea of ordinances and this delivering of ordinances. Uh, what, what, what is he talking about here? So in verse 3 we see, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of the woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God. Now we're getting into a cryptic area. The head of Christ is God. And the head of man, every man, is Christ. But the head of the woman is man. And he says, I would have you know this. So, what does he mean by, I would have you know? I mean, the word there for know is commonly translated know. And he wants you to know. And it's actually kind of, I would have you know. So, what, what, is, what is he really trying to say? Well, we'll have to read on in order to get a better picture of what he's trying to say. But uh, he wills. He has in his mind, he intends that you know something about this. And he's saying this to the people because there's a problem developing. I've seen the problem develop before in churches. And it's a natural temptation. Man is tempted, woman is tempted. 
uh, man's, you know, I heard somebody who was a famous preacher, I've known him for 60 years probably, uh, known of him for 60 years at least, uh, I personally knew him for at least, uh, 50 years, and, uh, more than 50 years, and he's trying to explain the relationship of Adam and Eve as it is in Genesis, which is another reason why I'm going back to Genesis. I heard another, uh, college professor supposedly teaching Genesis and I thought oh my gosh there's a real need that we go back to Genesis because people you got to go back to the beginning and uh, so we'll we'll be looking at that in the days ahead so you know find us Keys on the Kingdom join the network at preparingyou.com go to hisholychurch.org join the network and start finding out what we're talking about and then we will keep giving you those updates as we get to them Right now, though, we're actually at about the halfway mark and we're supposed to be going to break. So, anyway, when we go to, uh, I should clip along here a little faster because of the fact that we won't get to the end. And uh, I, I don't really want to spend a lot of time on this, but I'm, because of the fact that we can really jump to a large portion of this pretty quick. The problem that we have in a lot of congregations is that women want to take control. I was talking about this preacher for years who's trying to explain the problem with men and women and the the conflict between men and women. And in the beginning, you know, supposedly in the allegory of the Garden of Eden, man is first, woman is taken from man, born of man. Uh, because his rib was given over and genetically altered or whatever you want to think about what all this means. I don't believe it's a 100% literal, but I think it's 100% true. But what parts are literal and what parts are metaphor trying to tell you something. Really, the woman should be treated by the man more as his daughter. I mean, man and woman are supposed to procreate, but he should be caring for the woman. And and that as he cares for his daughter, that should be the primary goal of the man in relationship to the woman. Because and that man is tempted to abuse that care and take authority where he should not have it and rule over the woman and become a tyrant and a dictator by her supposedly weaker status. Well, she can actually be a little bit more cunning than men. She has a better connection between the left and right hemispheres. And so she can manipulate a man a number of different ways by her physical presence and by her the cleverness of her mind. And so she that is her strength and she can be tempted by her strength to manipulate the man and rule over the man. And and we see that. We see men that are ruled over by their wives and we see men that are you know, brutalize their wives and rule over them with their physical might. Uh, you very seldom see, well actually you do see some narcissists manipulating women and, and, uh, abusing women with their, but usually they will fall back on their physical ability to manipulate those women, you know, with power and, uh, physical might, dunamis, uh, with their stronger ability. But there, these are temptations that we must overcome to become real men and women. And what often happens in a church setting is the women start to try to take charge. Now, who's supposed to be in charge in the church? If you give me the answer of the man, you probably missed it. Christ is supposed to be in charge in the church, not the man. Christ is supposed to be in charge of the man. 
But Christ isn't going to rule you like a dictator. He's going to rule you like a blessed, loving brother and father. Because of the fact that his father, his, you know, is God. The head of Christ is God. That's what he's saying there in verse 3. Now when we get into verse 4, you can get lost here pretty quick. Every man praying or prophesying, have his head covered, dishonoreth his head. You mean if you prophesy or pray with a hat on, you dishonor your head? How do you do that? Okay, these are metaphors. You have to start thinking farther and deeper into what they're trying to say. Verse 5, But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head. For that is even all one as if she were shaven. Well, the image of a woman getting her head shaved, and this was a thing that they used to do to shame women and shave, and they were doing it in World War II, women who fraternized with the Germans, they got their head shaved. And uh, it's a way of shaming women because you disapprove of what they were they've been doing. But the reality is, is that... Paul's not talking about shaving women's head. He's talking about principles here. And if you're focusing on whether or not she has a doily on her head or a covering on her head, you're missing the principle. You've already unmoored what he's trying to say to you from the meaning of what he is trying to deliver to you. He's trying to deliver something to you. So, in verse 6, we see him go on in the same vein. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God... But the woman is the glory of the man. Now, okay, that's going to cause all kinds of trouble. I can see, you know, they just recently, some uh, court in England just ruled that the Bible is incompatible with the laws of England or something along those lines because of its treatment of transgender and homosexuality. But they don't understand the Bible. Anyway, this word glory... Uh, we see it translated glory. It's doxa in the Greek. We see it translated glory about 145 times. Glorious about, about 10 times. But it's also translated honor. It's, it, it means opinion or judgment or view. So opinion, judgment or view, opinion, estimate, whether good or bad concerning someone. What are, what are they talking about? The, the, the image, when they say, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, the woman is the glory of the man. The opinion of man, the judgment of man, the view of man. He's talking about the relationship of men and women. Man is judged by his relationship with a woman. If he's an overbearing tyrant, he is judged by that. That's going to have an effect on his very soul, whether the Holy Spirit will reside in him or not. If the woman is manipulative, I mean, a woman by her nature is going to tempt the man by her very nature. It's not her fault. She's just 
it's going to be the same as a child. It's going to tempt the patience of a man. Because <laughs> yeah, it's going to be demanding. It's going to pull on him. And that's okay. But when it's when you're conniving to gain power over the man, then the woman is falling to the temptation. And And so, when they say glory, they're talking about judgment. Your relationship with your husband, the husband's relationship with his wife needs to be an imitation of Christ in both ways. Or they will bring themselves under judgment. That's what that word, their glory, means, is judgment. That's how he's using it. But if you just translate it, you may miss this. If you had the Holy Spirit, you'd understand. But if you don't, then I'm going to tell you, you're probably missing it if you think your wife has to wear a doily on her head. You're missing the whole message. Now, I'm not against, you know, your wife wearing a scarf or a covering on her head or any of those things. But that's not what he's talking about. And if you're focusing on that, you're, you've missed the boat. In verse 8, For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Now, he's going back to Genesis and talking about a kind of a, a chain of positions here. You know, the reality is, is the woman has a, you know, like in the big fat Greek wedding, the, the woman, the man is the head of the house, but the woman is the neck, and the neck can make the head turn any way she wants. And then we see that playing out in the movie, but the reality is, I think the husband really knew what the wife was up to. He's playing a little dumb, but he actually was a lot more in control than most people realize, but uh, it's a movie. It's not real life. And all men are not perfect. So, you know, maybe he was a little weaker than he should have been. But uh, she was bringing compassion. He was bringing tradition. And uh, somehow they worked it out. Like Tevya and Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, it's love that conquers all. And really, that's what Paul is talking about. He talks about love more than anything else. Yet some people make a big deal out of whether a woman's got a hat on her head or a man doesn't have covering. In verse 9 we see, Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Why was the woman created for the man? Because it wasn't right that he was alone, because he needed to have his metal tested. And that's kind of what the woman... is. She isn't there to get him coffee. Uh, she isn't there to be some sort of a servant or slave. She is there to help that man to test the metal of the man so that he becomes a real man. Unfortunately, a lot of the people that are banging on the fact that they got to wear a hat and all this other stuff, they're actually moving away from the real message of who's the man because they're worshipping the metaphor and not the meaning. So in verse 10, For this cause ought the woman to have the power on her head because of the angels. Now that is a little bit of a mistranslation. That word angels there that we see, it's also translated messenger. It, most of the time it's translated angels, but it actually is defined as messenger envoy who is sent. Somebody who is sent with a message. It doesn't have to be an angel with wings. It's somebody with a message. But the key word here in this sentence is the woman to have power on her head 
because of the angel's power. The word power there is the same word that we see translated power in Romans 13 again, which I talked about this morning in 1 Corinthians. He used that same word there too. Well, some Bibles translate that word government. Not there in that place. So are we to think that the woman is to have the government on her head? Because of the angels? We know that the apostles were listening to women who had prophecy. Daughters of a particular man prophesied that something was going to happen and they had a heads up because they prophesied. The the fact is, is, both the woman and the man should be temples of the Holy Spirit. And the power of the man is really the power of the Holy Spirit. And the power of the woman is really the power of the Holy Spirit. And they're supposed to both bring that power together into the the body of Christ. And if all of you were doing that, you would have more power than you would know what to do with. More of that exousia power than you know what to do with. But you're not all doing it because you're running off chasing the metaphor rather than the principles. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. Okay, now that's an interesting statement. Without the man and without the woman. The word without there, that is a word that is translated without, but it doesn't just mean without. If you look at the actual definition of the word, it means separate or apart. The man is not separate from the woman and the woman not separate from the man. In the Lord. So if the Christ is in the woman and Christ is in the man, they are not separate. They're one. You're not going to have all this conflict. If you're having conflict, somebody is without the Lord. And they need to take a look at that. Now, if, if the man always thinks it's her without the Lord, well, I, I guess again, he's probably wrong. <laughs> but anyway, in verse 12, For as the woman is of the man, even so... Is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. So it's just saying the same thing in another little bit different word, wording. Which is what I told you this morning, is that Paul is commonly doing that. That's a practice in the, in the Old Testament we see. Is they say this exact same thing in a little bit different way. It's walking around the elephant, looking at it from a slightly different point of view. Painting the picture from a different angle. Judge... In yourself, is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Again, what does he mean by uncovered? Without a doily on her head? Uh, Is that what they're talking about? (laughs) You know, you have to understand social structure. I mean, the social welfare of Christians was entirely from the community of Christians. And communities are born in the family. Family was key. The only corporation that God made for centuries was the corporation of the family. Husband and wife and children in a, a consanguinity from generation to generation. And even Noah was righteous in his generation, so he was counted as righteous, even though he wasn't righteous, but at least he was righteous in his generation. So this is a very important part of the thing. So the covering is a part of what family are you a part of? And somebody was talking to me about not having a family that is following after God. And so, well, you still have a family, so you still need to honor your family. I mean, they're grown. They're not a little kid anymore. But 
you can start to attach yourself to another family without becoming married. You can become married, but that isn't necessary. It's about relationships. It's about honoring one another. It's about caring about one another. So anyway, judge in yourself. Is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Well, what is that word comely? You know, what, 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 are they, what do they mean by comely? <laughs> so, you know, uh, that word is means to stand out, to be conspicuous, to be imminent. So this is how you become a part of a family is that you you play an actual part in that family where you're assistant. I had an aunt, uh, actually a great, great aunt, and it was Aunt Fanny, and she never got married. She never had any kids, but she helped raise all of her siblings' kids. She was there for them. She played a part in the family. She served the family. She contributed to the family. And all the family loved her, even though she didn't have kids. She was not just an aunt that sends you a Christmas card. She was an aunt that played a significant role in helping that family. I I, I think I shared something today on Facebook. I meant to, but I take care of my granddaughter. and She's quite a distraction. But... Uh, it's about a group that's going out and helping poor people help themselves. And the key thing is is that all the people, they gather in small groups, six, seven families, and then they sit down in those groups and try to figure out how they can help each other lift the burden of poverty off of them. And that's really what we talked a little briefly about that this morning, is that every family should be trying to make every other family wealthy. Paul, the reason we talked about it this morning is Paul talked about it in Corinthians 10. And that's what we're supposed to be doing is that if we want to be wealthy, we have to care about the wealth of our neighbor as much as ourselves. If we want not to be poor, we have to want our neighbor not to be poor as much as ourselves. In a lot of countries, poverty is killing people. And so, you know, in America, some of the poorest people live like kings of old. Because <laughs> things are so plentiful. It will not always be that way, but it is right now. So doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him. Well, again, what did that mean to them at that time? And we're not going to have time to go into it. But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to him. Again, what's that word glory? It's honor, judgment uh, to her. For her hair is given her for a covering. So now she has a covering. So why does she need a doily too? Because she has a covering in her hair. But if any man seems to be contentious, we have no such custom. Neither the church, churches of God. Contentious. What is that? A wife beater? Is, you know, somebody who is mean and selfish and arrogant and bossy and a tyrant and a dictator? You know, that... It means fond of strife and contentious. Now, in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not that ye come together, not for the better, but for the worse. So you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. Don't come together to feel good. Come together to be of assistance in hard times with one another. You come together to help others be built up and strengthened. 
not to have yourself. You don't come together for what you can get. How many people leave a church because I'm not getting anything out of it? Well, how much are you putting into it? The first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there is be division amongst you. And I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies amongst you that they which are approved may be made manifest amongst you. That's why you come together. Not because everybody's going to have the right answer, but because you're going to contend. You're not coming together to be contentious, but you're going to contend with the lie. And hopefully, in love, you will overcome the lie and the contention. So just because somebody is saying something when they come, but if they're dividing you, like everybody who's not got a doily on their wife's head has to get out. Or I'm not going to join with them because they don't all have put hats on their wives' heads. And they're not, their, their wives are not submissive. Well, you know, guess again. <laughs> That's not what it's all about. You're probably missing. Now, I don't mind. I think we've had people come and they, they have the Amish outfit and everything and that's fine. Nobody puts them down for it. But they're also not demanding everybody else wear it either. They're not dividing over the metaphors and interpretations of the metaphors. That's their custom and their tradition. But it isn't necessarily the tradition of Christ. Christ was breaking all the rules of the Pharisees all the time. Why was he doing that? Because he understood the principle of the rule. So when ye come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, every one taketh before other his own supper. And one is hungry, and another is drunken. What have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? Praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. So he's saying, you know, he took bread with Judas Iscariot and was betrayed the same night. Here's the message. It isn't about wearing covering on your head. This is the message about not creating division amongst you. And to, and to challenge one another to see if we are really following the Holy Spirit. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. This is in remembrance of me. So that was just, you know, a little token meal that they had together, which is what the Passover, the Passover was a remembrance of the delivery from Egypt, but then the people were back in the bondage of Egypt and Judea, and now he was delivering them again. And now you need deliverance again. But you're not going to do it with wafers of bread. You're going to do it with righteousness. Because he came and said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, which is another way of doing things. Repent and think a different way, and seek the righteousness of God. And the righteousness of God is not worshipping the metaphor, but doing righteousness with one another. After the same manner also he took the cup, And he supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye oft as ye drink in remembrance of me. Rightly dividing the bread from house to house, and they're getting into this in verse 26, you need to understand the metaphor of drink my blood and eat my flesh. 
For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, which is not a piece of wafer or a glass of grape juice, but it's a way. Again, eating the flesh and blood of Christ is a way. You do show the Lord death till he comes. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat the bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthy shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But people are turning these metaphors into mindless rituals and they have left off the righteousness. The churches that press this the most, they are not taking care of all the needy of society. They are actually sending people to the men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority one over the other. And for centuries they've been crowning these men kings over others instead of what Christ was trying to do is make each of you king in your own castle. And they've been tempting you with the unrighteous mammon, with the wages of unrighteousness, with the dainties of the king, which are a snare. And that's why you're in the state that you're in. And this is this is the subject matter of this chapter. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread, and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthy, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So people will come and they'll want the charity of the church. But if it's given in the spirit of the Holy Spirit, it will serve them no good. It will it will convict them. It will even cause damage to them, even though it's really good stuff. Each of you must have Christ in you. If you go back to those first few verses you can see that each of you is to be a minister of Christ. Each elder, uh, each head of the family, his wife, his children, all of you are to be a blessing to your neighbors by bringing the light of Christ into place. So we didn't get all the way to the end. We have a couple more verses and we're just flat out running out of time, but I can always review this when I do chapter 12. <laughs> But until then, I'm going to have to say peace on your house and may God be with you. And uh, But join the network. That's probably the most important things. And then we can get on to seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.